So the saying that we're looking at, these tough sayings of Jesus, I've taken it from the... Oh, it's gone off the top, hasn't it? Taken it from the New International Version. Gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. Looking around, presumably most of us think Jesus didn't literally mean that. I think this is one of the tough sayings of Jesus and there's always the possibility that we can reduce it to something that's not tough. I expect if we were clever with theology we could say, oh it really means something else or exegesis, exegesis means looking at the exact words and their meaning and uh, I'm sure we could be clever about that. I've even brought my Greek New Testament because there's always uh, a, uh, a slender hope that look into the original languages and it doesn't mean what everybody else thought it meant well don't pin your hopes on that too highly let's look at this so it sounds tough and I think it actually is tough let's look at the so what we will do is look at the text what the texts say and then I'll offer some comments and at some point probably open it up for your uh, questions and observations and your comments. But let's, let's just look and see what Jesus said. So we read in Matthew chapter 5, uh, it's verses 29 and 30 that I'm thinking of. Matthew 5, 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's not me saying it, it's what Jesus says. We might take some comfort if it was just said once. We say, well, that's a little bit of a blip. However, it is repeated. Matthew 18. Please look in your Bible to Matthew 18. Slightly different context. Matthew 18, Jesus calls a little child to himself and he uses the likeness of a little child and says this is Christians are like little children they've got to be like little children and in verse 6 chapter 18 verse 6 he says if anyone causes of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung round his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea so this is causing someone else to sin that's where how we get to this point and then Jesus says woe to the world because of things that cause people to sin such things must come but woe to the man through whom they come if your hand or your foot causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away it is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire 
and if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. And we might say, what a very barbaric idea of hell. That's just the medieval church and pitchforks and all that sort of stuff. But Jesus is the one who actually teaches about hell in these particular passages. So that's what he said. Not only in Matthew's Gospel, but in Mark's Gospel. Let's look at Mark chapter 9. Similar to the Matthew passage, the one that we just read, Mark chapter 9, verse 42. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied round his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. And there's the slight hope we could say the last bit doesn't seem to connect very well. Don't know quite what he's talking about with salt, so maybe we're not supposed to take very much notice of it. But I don't think we can get away with that because even if we don't understand how the salt fits in, the other bit is actually perfectly clear, isn't it? Well, we can take some comfort that when that it doesn't seem to be mentioned in Luke. So take some comfort from that. And in John's Gospel, there doesn't seem to be anything similar in John's Gospel. But in Romans, there does seem to be, seem to be something rather similar. Romans 8, verses 12 to 14. Not exactly the same, but it does mention the body and it does mention uh, death, violent action. Romans 8 from verse 12. And he says, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The context is a bit more familiar. It doesn't quite have the brutality of cutting off your hand or gouging out your eye. But it's not a million miles away, is it? It's saying, this is the Christian life. It's the Christian life in the power of the Spirit, verse 14. 
and it's the Christian life that leads to life verse 14 it's the Christian life in relationship with God um, sorry but that was verse 13 verse 14 those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God and it involves radical action contrary to what is what seems to be built into us in this physical world if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body yeah the actions of the body so that seems to be what would otherwise come naturally to us that needs to be strangled needs to be fought against if you put to death the actions of the body you will live it's not a million miles away do you agree with me it's it's sort of in the same territory isn't it but it just sounds a little less threatening so I don't know whether that's got us any fo further forward I I would like to mention that uh, Jesus is actually in many cases very positive about eyes and hands and feet and Jesus found people who were blind and he gave them back their sight and Jesus found people whose hands didn't work properly and he restored them to working and people who were lame and couldn't walk and Jesus set them on their feet again so I don't think Jesus is against people having eyes or against people having hands or against people having feet they're, they're good things so let's allow ourselves the possibility that Jesus is speaking in a way at least which needs to be put into a context so don't go home and buy a meat cleaver or a skewer yet now let's look at the context so, that, so what I'd like to do is to go back to the Matthew passage and look at it a little bit more carefully and we can entertain the hope that if we look at it carefully it doesn't mean what it seems to mean but we'll just have to see won't we so we're in Matthew 5 so a helpful thing to do is look at the, at the large context always helpful to put a, a saying into a context you wouldn't like people to take things you said out of context would you you'd want them to know but but this is the situation in which I said it so let's look at, at Jesus's sermon so I think the context of this is salvation by grace we were talking about that this morning salvation by grace he's not talking about earning our way to heaven by being brutal on ourselves he's saying the way to heaven is by casting ourselves on the mercy of God and coming to God trusting in him relying on him and that's why he begins by saying chapter 5 verse 3 blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven I think that's grace isn't it there's people who are saying Lord I know I'm such a sinner I, I get things wrong so often I really can't come to you all puffed up and say I thank you God I'm better than him and better than them more like the, the tax collector you remember in the story who came to God and hit himself on the chest and said God be merciful to me a sinner and Jesus said he went home right with God 
because he'd asked for mercy. Do you remember that? And I think that's what Jesus is, is, is referring to when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those are the people. Those are the people I'm talking about and those are the people I'm talking to. And then he says in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. I think he's, he's on the line of people who say, oh Lord, my sin makes me weep. I cannot be satisfied with myself as I am. Think of all the things that I've done that I'm, to say that I wasn't proud of them would be an understatement. I'm so sorry. And I think Jesus is tapping into that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And he goes on, blessed are the meek. So I think this is salvation by grace. That's the context that we're in. Would you agree with me on that? So he's, he's talking to people who are saved by grace. And then I would like to focus in a little bit more. He's talking about life in the kingdom. If you look at chapter 5, verse 17, which we read, Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he talks about fulfilling the law uh, in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19, the kingdom of heaven. And if you follow it right through to chapter 7, verse 12, which is near the end of the sermon, he, he then says, in everything do to others what you would have them do for this sums up the law and the prophets and it's like uh, two bookends holding in a load of books in the middle do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets beginning this is the law and the, this sums up the law and the prophets the end I think he's talking about what the life of the Christian ought to be like it fulfills everything that the Bible says in the law and the prophet. It fulfills it. And Jesus says, my people not only fulfill this, but there's going to be a quality about their lives which exceeds merely rule-keeping and pernicketiness about ticking boxes if you like, verse 20, chapter 5, verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking about uh, salvation by grace, and he's saying now this amazing salvation really touches people's lives and brings them into a spiritual place and a spiritual condition where there is a reality and a power at work within them which could, can't be touched by just ticking boxes and the, the law-keeping of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Do you follow me on that? He's saying there's a sort of a quality, a quality, a spiritual quality in the life of his people. Yeah, you would be willing to follow me in that thought? And then he, having said, I'm going, having said my people saved in this way are going to live in a, a, really a supernatural, a remarkable way. He then goes on to talk about some very practical things in terms of character 
or if you like in terms of living so that's why he talked about murder that's where in verse 21 so he talks about murder and he says okay the the the, the if you want to do ticking the box mur- have you imagine this on your tax form couldn't you um please uh, marital status um tick that and then it's funny because my accountant uh, sends me this and uh, there's lots of boxes to tick and I'm never quite sure whether I've read it properly and got the right one and then the next box says are you blind Uh, I mean that's a proper question but I always feel it's rightly addressed to me you know Um, and have you committed murder Uh, no have you committed murder in the last financial year no so you could, you, could, you could say yes, to, you could tick that, couldn't you? Uh, but Jesus says, I'm actually interested in something that goes deeper than that. Uh, I tell you, there's something that goes on in your heart that might not get as far as murder, but it's the same uh, action in your heart. Anyone who is angry with his brother, if you think, oh, I could just... No. That, Jesus says, well, that's... You know, it's all of a piece, really. So that anger, he says, you're not to have that anger either. Do you see what I mean? And he goes on to talk about making peace. So he goes from murder, well, you could tick that. I haven't committed murder in the last financial year. But have I been angry? It's a bit, a bit of a more of a searching question. And then am I resolving issues with people and making peace? See how he develops it. So there's that bit. Then there's the bit that we're looking at, which we'll come to in a moment. Then he talks about oaths verse 33 and you say I'm not really quite sure what the oaths bit is about and I say I'm not really quite sure either I think it's to do with the way people speak and the way they try and uh, bring power into their words by linking their words with God or with Jesus and Mary or with um, all sorts of things And, and, and Jesus says there's something quite perverse about doing that we can leave that one then he talks about personal retribution in verses 38 to 42 Uh, you heard it said eye for eye tooth for tooth but I tell you you know don't take personal recrimination and then he broadens that out and says uh, really what you're to be is generous if somebody wants to force you to go two mile uh, one mile go with them two miles go the extra mile so I think that's something about generosity Uh, and then see we're getting into deep water even if we're trying to make things simpler here the next bit he says love your enemies love your enemies love those annoying people love those people who you really profoundly disagree with love the people who have completely wacky political views etc and then he talks about giving money in chapter 6 but the bit that we so that's the context of it and the bit that we are looking at comes in where Jesus is talking about sexual ethics so verse 27 you heard, this is about committing adultery and then in verse 31 and all onwards it talks about divorce so I mean, it's Jesus that's saying these things this is the context in which he's saying it I don't know whether that makes it more or less palatable but that's what he says so we looked at, looked at the context. And now let's look at the actual, what he actually says. No, 
We might as well look at the words and read them properly. So vice, uh, vice, verse 27. You have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. One of the Ten Commandments. Jesus is not going to undo this. He's not going to say adultery is fine. He's going to take it and intensify it and deepen it and fill it up just as he's done with all the other things. Adultery is sexual union that breaks a covenant that the person had with somebody else or that you had with somebody else. So it's covenant breaking sexual union and you might say, well, that's fine because I haven't committed adultery. I'm, I'm just having sex with somebody who isn't anybody's wife and isn't my wife either. And I think Jesus would actually include that um, because that would be sexual union where there wasn't a covenant at all. So don't, don't take comfort in the fact that he just limited it to adultery. So you say, no, I've committed adultery. I think he's, he's actually taking that whole sexual ethic and intensifying it and deepening it because he says adultery is the outward thing I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart and so he's now dealing with lust which is not the outward act but the inner desire and the active contemplation and at this point I can I can say that the rest of it is all male. It's all he. So the ladies can think, well, that's good for me because I don't have to pluck out my eye. I don't have to cut off my hand because I don't look at women lustfully. Or at least um, most of you are thinking that. So breathe a sigh of relief. Mm, okay. Uh, well, it's... It, 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 I don't know. See what you think. So ladies, you're saying you don't have any inner desires or active contemplations of things that are wrong. Fair enough. But Jesus here is saying, blokes, uh, you haven't committed adultery, but what's gone on in your, in your thinking, in your inner desire? And he, it's not the same thing as temptation. I think it was Martin Luther who said, you can't stop pigeons flying over your head, but you can stop them making nests in your hair. Uh, we can't stop temptations flitting around us, but we can, we're not to let the temptations make a home in our thinking and be, be, be welcome. That's the point, isn't it? And he takes, so he takes this lust and he locates this in the act of looking doesn't he verse 28 anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart so it's the look that is the trigger so that's the look and then and then and then and then and that's the context in which he says oh, the, the look was the crucial point wasn't it so if you can, what you need to do is stop at that point. You need to, to um, attack that point. And here's how to do it. If your right eye literally stumbles you, okay, to trip you over, if your right eye causes you to sin, 
take it out. So, so, okay, that's helpful with the Greek, doesn't it? The Greek just says take it out, doesn't say gouge it out. So the NIV put that in. That was much more bloodthirsty, so we take a little bit of comfort from that. So you just have to take your eye out. Take out your eye and throw it away. If your, notice the right eye, your best eye, the one that you uh, use to fire a catapult with or whatever else you might be using eyes f for uh, your right eye, if, that, if your best eye, if that's the one that does it, notice he does say if, if that's the problem, if you can locate the source of the problem there, then even if it was your right eye, even if it's your best eye, that's where you've got to take action. I don't know, is this making it more tame or is this, or what? Well, this is what he's saying, isn't it? And uh, similarly, if your right hand causes you to sin, verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, if, and your right hand, for most people, it's the best hand, it's the important hand. If, if that causes you to sin, if that's the one that stumbles you, what does he say? Cut it off and throw it away. So I notice that he's saying, when he says right, he means the best, the, the key, you know, the, the, your most precious eye, your, your, your best hand. And the if seems to say, if this is the, the precursor, if this is the bit after this you're sinning, then that's the bit you go for and you have to do it. And that's what he's saying. And I think it's tough. Even if you say he's just speaking metaphorically. Uh, let's have another look at, at what he actually says. He, he gives a reason. Uh, verse 29 and 30 both use the word better. Now I have to confess I only looked up one of these but I, let's assume they're both the same. If it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So I looked up better, and it, it's simfero. I'm sure that's helpful for us to know that. It means, uh, the sim bit means together, and the ferro presumably means to carry. Uh, so it's a word which if you were to take it literally, means to carry together. So I suppose the idea is it, it's, it's better to carry something together. You get some help with that. Uh, it's a constructive thing. So th there's a, a helpfulness. It's advantageous. And I, I notice again here that Jesus is not saying, I want to spoil your fun. I want to make life worse for you. I want to make life miserable for you. He's saying, I want to make life better for you. I want to bring to you something that's to your advantage. And the point being, if you agree with me on this, that he's saying that a limited loss in this world is better than 
a total loss in the future. That's the logic of it. Do you agree with me? I, I mean, this is, he either means this or it's complete nonsense. I mean, this, this is what he means, isn't it? It's better to deliberately have a limited loss in this world than a total loss in the future. That's the logic of it. Please notice the assumption behind it, which is a tough one. The assumption is that continued unchanged sin in our lives will take us to hell. That's the assumption. What Jesus says doesn't make sense without that assumption. Continued unchanged sin in our lives will take us to hell. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. There are two alternatives. Either you carry on sinning and you, the whole body goes to hell or, or you make an attack on sin and you don't go to hell. Now again, I, you see, I'd much rather say something that's inspiring and cheerful and, uh, uh, and happy. But if I'm going to be true to what Jesus says, I've got to say what he says. And that's what he's saying, isn't it? Um, you, you might say it's very primitive. One of my uh, ministerial colleagues in Linfield got a very, he preached on hell and he got a very indignant letter from one of his parishioners saying, you know, dear Reverend so-and-so, you have been preaching medievalism. We thought the church had escaped all that. The God of the Bible is a God of love. But Jesus is saying something different, isn't he? He's saying that sin is so serious that if it keeps hold of our lives unchecked, unchanged, untouched, it will take men and women to hell. I think it's very hard for us to give the full weight to what he says because it's so stark and so frightening. So let's think of uh, let's think of some applications or think how this might work out. So uh, let's think about pornography. This is what Jesus has been talking about. He's been talking about lust, and uh, he talks. Uh, he seems to be, at least in the first instance, addressing this to men, and men are very simple creatures sexually. Uh, I once saw uh, a poster on an undergraduate wall which said uh, the way you can tell whether a man is sexually aroused is to see whether he's breathing or not. I think it's a little bit unkind. But uh, uh, I think Jesus is, is aware as we are today that uh, men are prone to lust. And it, if it was true in those days in a very conservative society, how much more true is it today where uh, unclean, um, unhelpful, uh, debasing pictures, um, TV programs, uh, magazine 
magazines are so uh, frighteningly readily available. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking TV, I'm thinking websites, I'm thinking magazines. I mean, I don't know what your definition of pornography is. I mean, would you say page three of The Sun is pornographic? Uh, if you say it's meant to be sexually arousing, I think you'd probably be right. I don't know what the, the correct definition of por pornography is, but Jesus is saying, if that look causes you to sin, you have got to find some way of stopping that. Uh, so if you subscribe to the sun, perhaps you ought to cut off your subscription. If, or if you, you ought to find a way of turning off the computer, what he's saying is, you really have, well I say we, we really have got to keep on at how to attack sin at its first stages. I don't think that's easy. And if I could give you a nice easy way to do it, I would. I don't think Jesus is telling us that it's easy because he uses this tough metaphor. He says it's like cutting off your right hand. And I, I would venture to say that you can only cut off your right hand once. But in this sort of warfare against sin, it's something that needs to be done again and again and again. It's a constantly moving battle. Now, maybe I'm being too graphic with this don't know but that was one thought that came to my mind and then I thought perhaps what Jesus said might apply to uh, what a euphemistically called substances substance misuse uh, substance misuse so when people say substances they don't mean tea and coffee and plaster of Paris they mean alcohol and various drugs I have to say, my, my upbringing has been so sheltered. I have very little experience that I can offer on this, a very little comment. But I do know, well, this is what I think anyway, that there may be people for whom alcohol is such a snare and a trap that the only way to avoid it is to cut it off at the root and say, I'm not going to have any alcohol. And if your journey takes you past the pub or takes you past the off-license and you know you, you'll think, oh, I just want to go in for a paper and while I'm there, I'll just buy something else as well. That may be the way to cut that off rather than cutting off your feet so you can't even go to work either would be to say, I won't go that route. I'll go a different way. Maybe that'd be quite an easy way out. And then I'm thinking, could we? would it be a legitimate thing to say, Maybe Jesus has, maybe this impinges on our relationships. Maybe there's a relationship in, uh, in our lives which is the trigger point for sin. And we know that this person, this relationship will get in the way between me and God. And I suppose you could carry on. But Jesus actually says tough things, doesn't he? If such and such, if that's the cause of sin, 
Jesus is saying there, uh, and there's a radical answer just stop at that first point it's tough isn't it and that if that's a correct application might be very costly might say uh, you know a, a young woman might be saying this person is probably the only offer of marriage I'm likely to get and this person I have no security that this person is not going to lead me away from the Lord a very difficult decision that would be wouldn't it but I think Jesus is talking tough stuff right I've got one more thing to say but I'm going to stop at this point and ask whether you think this has made sense and whether you think that this is going the right direction and what, what people might have to add to help us to take on board what Jesus is saying so I'll stop for a minute any thoughts You're now going to be on national television or something like that, yeah. <laughs> uh, mm. um, where you said unchanged sin in our lives mm. will take us to hell. Mm. Um, well, I suppose I've been... Um, well, it really struck me because I think it's true for... Um, well, I never really thought it was true for Christians, but I... There's definitely that um, sort of accounts through history where um, men become, well, humans become so evil that um, their remorse, they have no remorse. And it's almost as if God, well, it says like God, there comes a point where God hands them over and turns his back on them and doesn't allow them because everything that's good is um you know god's presence and so um well i was struck by that and um from watching um because I, I watched 12 years a slave and looking at the plantation owners and um not all of them were horrible men but they um they refused to listen to their consciences and some of them were corrupted by that and their conscience left them and they became monsters. Um, so that's, I find that interesting yeah. and so devastating as well. Yes, it is, isn't it? It's a rather frightening process of hardening that uh, there is a, a downward spiral of refusing to listen to conscience and turning away from the Lord. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. Um, so people can become more and more inhuman, couldn't they? Here's another thought. Do you think that people could go to hell even if they were, I don't know, consultant gynecologists? It's a very humane, it's a very humane thing to be. But if that person never dealt with, I don't know, selfishness, short temper, but that person would go to hell as well. Do you think? 
As a non-Christian, of course. Or yeah. As a well, yeah, this is, a, okay, this is another question. So is there a get-out clause which says, if your right hand causes you to sin, throw it away, if you're not a Christian, but if you are a Christian, if your right hand causes you to sin, you don't have to worry because you're okay. I'm, I'm not asking, I'm not trying to, to make it awkward for you. I'm just I'm asking everybody that. Is, it a, is there a get out clause? It's interesting, isn't it? It, it, it? He, I don't think he allows us to minimize the force of it by saying, oh, well, that doesn't include us. I think he says, no, you feel the force of this. If you, even if you say you're a Christian, whatever you say, let's put it down to real nitty-gritty. In your life, are there things that you are failing to deal with? Oh, goodness, we all have ups and downs, don't we? You know, uh, we all struggle. But he says, no, hang on. If there are things that you are genuinely not failing, you are failing to deal with, that will take you to hell. I think that's what he's saying, isn't it? So we deal with it. If you're a Christian, you heed the warnings. Uh, so Romans 8 says, if, 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 if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body you will live there's only two ways to do it you either live according to the sinful nature or you live contrary to the sinful nature and you attack the sinful nature and by the power of the spirit you put things in your life to death not saying people are going to be perfect not saying there won't be an ongoing struggle but at least you're fighting does that make sense mm. I was saying I remember another quote alongside that Martin Luther quote about you, could, you can't stop the birds flying over your head but you can stop them making nests in your hair um, and it's Garrison Keeler who I think it was like a take off of the Southern Baptists if you didn't want to go to Minneapolis why did you get on the train? Okay. And that uh, we use that frequently to teaching this to young people because, you know, you 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 deliberately get on the train when you go the first step. And what mm -hmm. you're suggesting mm -hmm. is, is that we we hold ourselves back at the first step. Yeah. You don't have to get on the train. And yeah. I, I heard a story actually, and I don't remember whether it was George Verwer himself who was telling it, but somebody it was about him. Um, struggling with this issue of, of lustful looks and so on, he was preaching, he got up to preach, and there was a girl sitting in the front row with a very low-cut dress, and he just said, I'm sorry, I, I can't cope with this. Would you mm. pass a cardigan forward so she can put mm. a cardigan on? And he was, in effect, plucking out his eye in that context. Yeah. You know, he was doing, if you didn't want to go to Minneapolis, well, don't get on the train. Cut it out at the first stage. He mm. didn't have to pluck out his eye. What he needed was a cardigan for the girl to wear. Yes. So it's the same practical step. I, I see the logic of it. And yeah, practical steps. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Be radical. <laughs> yes. I suppose he could have gone to another church and preached there instead. Uh, 
Any more thoughts? Microphone. A general comment, I think, about many of these sayings of Jesus is that, in a sense, I think they're meant to be impossible because he's, he's actually saying, um, you know, your righteousness has got to exceed the, that of the scribes and Pharisees. He says, you, you, you're, um, you know, I tell you the truth, not the smallest letter or least stroke of a pen will be taken from the law. Until all is accomplished. Until all is accomplished. And so I, I think, it, you know... He, He's, he's actually making us see that, you know, in the flesh it is impossible. You know, you couldn't do it, could you? I mean, there are very few people who could actually pluck out their eye or cut off their <laughs> wrist. Yes. You couldn't do it. Mm. And, you know, and I think in a sense it's meant to take, teach us to trust in the grace of Christ and to live by the Spirit. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure what you say is right. The idea is that you, you know, you, you, well, I, like, I like that phrase actually. If you don't want to go to Minneapolis, don't get on the train. Yes, that's, mm. um, and I'm sure that's what is, that, that's you know the way what it means in practice. But I, I think also it, it's deliberately meant to be impossible, to to illustrate the difficulty of, in fact, of getting free from sin. Yeah, when you say it's meant to be impossible, is that that means that we're, that we're meant to read it and say, oh well. This is so impossible, we might as well disregard it altogether. Is that what, that's what you no, mean? No, no, what I mean is it says we're meant to depend on God's grace and say only by the Spirit can we put mm. to death mm. the deeds of the flesh. With, with yeah. man, it's impossible. Yeah. Uh, so, and he, I mean, it's like the camel going, he says, I couldn't find the text, but it's a similar thing where he says, you know, a rich man can't enter the kingdom of God. It's easier to get a camel through the eye of the needle. Mm. And he says, you know, with men it is impossible, but with God nothing is impossible. And I think that implicit in this is the idea that, that it's only through grace and through the spirit that, that these things can be done at all. Supernatural, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Well, we'll sing in a moment, shall we? And then uh, let me just offer you that, the, the one extra thought, which was in the other texts, which is like in Matthew 9:42, the connection is not so much what we... I don't think it's so much. Have I given you the right reference? No. Mark 9.42, thank you. Yeah, the reference there is not so much the effect it has directly on us, but even more frightening thought, the effect that we have on other people. If, if anyone who causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Now, I, I, I mean, I agree with Steve. He's using the language of extremes, but it—that's it, the language he's using, and he's saying, "How awful if our sin messes up somebody else's life and causes them to sin." I think that's. It's such a, what shall I say, a daunting, devastating thought. Yep. Microphone. Thank you. I, I think it was very helpful what you said about context hmm. and the fact that these particular points are set in that context of those particular verses. 
um, because Jesus saying here is very direct and I suppose it's a problem for all of us we look at the stuff either side of it and say I don't have a problem with the oath business and I think I can keep my control of my temper mm. and so forth and that balances my problem in the other area so we kind of evade mm. the issue and say yeah, I've got a problem there but that's just a, that's just my little problem the rest I'm pretty good at <laughs> get by and really what Jesus is attacking is saying if you've got a problem in that area you've got to deal with that area yeah. rather than try to do a bargain yeah. 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 yes it's a very um, what should I say to try and put into words the way that Jesus is not letting us off the hook is he it's not letting us off the hook and saying ah oh, well really it doesn't matter too much it sounds as though it matters but it doesn't I think he is saying to us the spiritual life really is a serious one there are serious issues and you've got to be serious about them. we've got to be serious about them it's a bit of a kick up the backside for us isn't it do you think? I think it is um, 